Welcome to the Myth, Legend and Lore podcast. Welcome to the Scalds Circle. With every gathering, you will hear enthralling tales, spellbinding sagas or captivating poetry, from the very Scalds who have created enchanting worlds of wonder that await your discovery. Today I have the delightful company of four excellent authors who will share a little of their work. You're in for a treat indeed. Let us begin the episode with the return of good friend and talented author Joshua Gillingham. You might remember Joshua from an episode last year, when he shared the smashing first chapter of The Gatewatch. A lot has happened since then, and I'm very happy to announce The Gatewatch has now been released. For those of you who fell in love with the troll-hunting trio Torn Tentries, Grin and Grimza, you can now embark on an exhilarating adventure that finds our heroes battling with ancient forces and putting their bravery, wits and strength to the test. Without further ado... Let me hand you over to our first scald. Hello, my name is Joshua Gillingham. I'm an author from Canada, and I am coming to you today from the Lindley Valley, which is a beautiful wooded park here in Vancouver Island on the very west coast of Canada. The sun is shining, the birds are singing, and I am sitting in a nice secluded grove full of beautiful cedar and arbutus trees, and I'm so happy to be joining you today for the Scald Circle. Thank you so much, Siobhan, for having me on. I'm excited to share that my debut novel, The Gatewatch, a troll-hunting misadventure inspired by the Norse myths and the Icelandic sagas, has just been released. I am going to read a little bit today, not from the story itself, but from the backstory, which is included as part of the appendix in the book. It tells the story of the realm of Norris's founder, the legendary Bjork the Bear, and is structured in a verse form that I tried to use to simulate some of these skaldic verses used by Viking poets and Germanic tribes to describe the stories of heroes. Without further ado, this is The Lay of Bjork. Part 1. Bjork Leaves the Grim Isles it has been told of old, our fathers on Grim Isles sailed stern ships with firm grip, salted water fearing. But one son named Bjork bore little love for fish. He scorned the barren sea and sought to twist his fate. So, sun-starved winter done, to his kinsfolk spoke he. Why dredge this dreary sea while realms do empty lay? Laughter, rocking rafters, rang long through drafty hall. Tell, where lay these fair lands? His father loud did mock. Their west, where wicked kings will glad make you their thrall? The sun scored southland sands, or east, or endless seas. Forth Bjork burst, nay, north, bear witness to this oath, north shall I set my sail, so come doom or glory. Some thought his words well wrought, with Bjork oath did take, then each their ship equipped, eager for voyage north. Six were Bjork's brothers, three did sail beside him, three did grieve them leaving, their father cursed him thus. So go then, greet thy doom, neath waves great fiends await, or meet on northern shore some other loathsome fate. Many men them trembled, his mother wailed and cried, but father bore for him not pity, fear, or pride. Part 2. Bjork Slays Kolkraba Through great gales north they sailed, oar and rudder thrashing, rolling waves wide riding, till for rest took shelter. But none there knew what lurked. Neath those writhing waters, foul ancient foe below, cruel Kolkraba found them. Beast or turn, brothers stern, her slick arms Bjork saw. With white rage he did fight, empty waves long slashing. Grey waves then went silent, loud wailing Bjork cursed, bent on violent vengeance against the vile sea beast. So quick they took thick rope, 
Prows then lashed together, tightening formed round ring to keep the ships from rolling. Then longest hook he took, ram's head on its skewered, down ship ring center dipped, all weighted, weapons drawn. Long laid strong Kokaraba, far below them lingering, but hook sunk deep did keep that devil in their grip. Haul heavy, Bjorik called, well hard his whole crew pulled, till tentacles slick spilled upon their tethered decks. Hewing, black blood spewing, each boat's crew hacked slick arms, till Bjork killed the beast upon his blood-soaked deck. Harbor guard, hard vanquished, safe haven there they won. On that beast they did feast, and mourn their fallen kin. Part 3. The Woman in the Wood So landed Bjork's band. Fair timber halls they built, those dark woods held good game. Thin backs and arms grew thick. But night would bring wild things which walked the woods and bogs, worse than the cursed wolves, trolls most foul and wicked. Yet heart did bid him dare, ever deeper wandering, strange words he heard, and songs, full of grief and sorrow. My sister, were you mad to make so cruel a trade, to tear me from fair woods, beast bride of me you've made? On her silver streaming, moonlight saw her suffer, so also Bjorik saw, sitting, hiding, listening. Hail, pale strangers, said she, long I saw you coming. Now tell well, what are you, wicked foe or hero? Bjorik grunted bluntly, bear your own keen judgment. My crew slew Kolkraba and many crafty trolls. Fortune fair, this moon bears, for sister mine conspires. Two dread troll king wed me, so she might take these woods. Grave word he gave and blade, there onward her to guard. So, like a spell, love fell, binding burning spirits. With Bjork quick she went, through dark and guarded woods, out of her sister's grip, and on to Bjork's hall. Part 4. Bjork and Fira Wide-eyed many met her, Fira, foreign maiden, red hair like flaring fire, eyes green as frigid seas. Bjork's brother wondered, Who is this you have brought? Dark things, I fear, cling close to her tattered cloak edge. His words Bjork heard not, for by her beauty snared, his heart and mind were blind to his kin's strong grumbling. Addressing all, she called, Tell, why this harsh abuse? Have I to one done harm or spoke ill in this hall? Betrayed by my sister, Liza, bitter schemer, heartless she would wed me to tyrant of these woods. Those there rose up at once, their anger like red iron. What king could claim this wood, one with our crimson blood? No word here heard, she asked, of horde lord Gisbrukter. Waits he high in gatewatch, his promised bride to wed. Then their thoughts were darkened. Fear made their anger thick. Bjorik bore thoughts of war, with boldness there he spoke. This long have we held strong against the restless horde. Let fear not steer us now, nay, let's slay this troll lord. Stern words stirred great courage, so gathered kin for war. Most of that mighty host would soon be seen no more. Part 5. The Battle of Gatewatch Over rivers raging, through rugged forest trod, Mighty host, most valiant, all for war made ready. To Gatewatch, through the pass, there in between pale peaks, Arrived to drive at last all threat of trolls from home. Sunset done, dusk settled, dark shapes stirred, rocks shifted. In gloom loomed figures great, long gray silence breaking. Horrid troll king howling, all his dread host calling, trolls like thunder rolling, grim-faced rushed to maul them. Bjorik, he stood bravely, gathering scattered brothers, shield sisters yielding, soon all round him rallied, slashing, bashing, breaking, Battered white bone shattered, screaming, red blood streaming, all night sharp steel edge sang. Dawn drew near to breaking, troll king desperate fighting. Saw first light, bright shining, all trolls turned to hard stone. Eyes by red rays blinded, troll king reeling stumbled. Quick leapt Bjorik boldly, bearing wrathful death strokes. This he then swore sternly. No troll shall thereafter between pale peaks be seen if kin of his prove brave. Funeral pyres blazed with fire, burning fierce till nightfall. Long did songs of sorrow echo under starlight. Part 6. The Death of Bjork All back at Bjork's hall, 
Awed by his daring deed, there hailing him as king, thick bear cloak on him laid. So there Bjorik the bear took Fura as his bride, then watches three he set to honor those who died. Gate watch in mountains gray, stag watch the wood did guard, sea watch to brave salt waves, all the realm strong keeping. And so that land secured for some time was held tame, in such rich soil toiling, sons and daughters prospered. But one bitter winter, in Bjork's well-lit hall, a stranger came to stay, black hair neath silver cloak. So this is he, she said, sly Kolkraba's slayer, great Gizbrukter's killer, with this glass I praise thee. Holding golden goblet, ruby liquid glimmered, up to lips cup lifted, red stains lingered after. But Bjork was not quick to sip her bitter wine. So said she, drink with me, or say that you are coward. That draught brought Bjork's death, loud bellowing he fell. Fast fleeing, cloak she shed, Liza, Fira's sister. Long sang they morning songs, with grief and wrath so wild. Yet all had this small hope, Fira held Bjork's child. I hope you enjoyed The Lay of Bjork. If you're now craving a troll hunting adventure, The Gatewatch is available from crowsnestbooks.com. You can also order it from your independent local bookshop or find it with online retailers. My name is Joshua Gillingham. It has been such a pleasure to join the Scald Circle today. And if you'd like to hear more from me, find me on Twitter at Josh M. Gillingham. Thank you, Joshua. That was absolutely fantastic. All links to our authors today will be in the show description. I now have the great pleasure of introducing our second novelist, whose books have become a firm favourite in my household. Eric Schumacher is an author of Viking historical fiction novels. You might recognise his best-selling Hakon Saga series, blending history and legend, to bring us the incredible story of Hakon Haraldsson, from youth to manhood, who survives attempts on his life by brother Eric Bloodaxe, claims the high seat once belonging to his father, Harald Fairhair, while discovering many loyal friends, and those who would have revenge. The novella Molabakin, The Rise of Bloodaxe, is an exceptional addition to the series, and today, Eric shares with us another of his thrilling adventures. Thank you so much for having me, and uh, thank you for that wonderful intro. I thought what I would do today is read the first chapter of my new book, uh, Forged by Iron, so I hope you enjoy it. Forged by Iron, Chapter 1, Vingelmark Ostfold, Summer, AD 960. I stood on a bluff, peering first at the sea far below, then over at Prince Olaf, the son of King Trigvi. Beneath the amber bangs that danced on his forehead, Olaf's blue eyes were alight and his cheeks round from a smile. I knew why he looked so. I had seen him thus several times before. It was the twinkle of mischief that Olaf got when he was about to embark on some adventure. I hated that look, for it usually involved me, and more often than not, it landed me in trouble. This adventure was no different, and my stomach roiled with misgivings, for Olaf was only eight winters old, and I only twelve, and the drop to the sea was farther than I remembered it being. My name is Torgil, son of Torolf, the lord of an island called Jell, an island on the coastline of Vingelmark in the Ostfold, which my father had earned in his service to the king. Men called Torolf Loosebeard on account of his wild beard and his violence in battle, but also in jest, for he was known to let his words loose when he lost his temper, which was often and mostly aided by ale. I suppose I inherited that temper, though I needed no ale to stoke it. My father once told me that he had known little peace in his life, and I believed it. He spoke little of it to me, but I heard many of the stories in our hall when other men came to visit. Decades before my birth, my father had joined Jarl Trigvi's men in helping the good King Hakon drive Eric Bloodaxe from the land. He had been no more than a boy then. While Eric's removal had brought some peace to the realm, there was never truly any rest from the fighting. Incursions from the land-hungry Danes and marauding sea kings kept the men of Vingelmark in a constant state of battle, which I suppose had much to do with my father's temper. When I was seven winters old, the sons of Eric Bloodaxe returned to the north with vengeance in their hearts and a will to see it through. 
After many battles, and with the help of the Danes, they finally killed good King Hakon and took the high seat for their own. Not a fortnight after Hakon's loss, my own mother, a raven-haired, green-eyed woman from a land far to the west, took ill and died. King Hakon had been a good and just king, and my mother a wise and gentle partner, and their loss struck as deep as any well-swung blade against soft flesh could. I still remember the tears that flowed from my father's eyes and the copious amounts of ale he drank to dry them. I remember, too, the sadness and loneliness and fear that defined my days and nights during that time. For my father's temper was as capricious as the uneasy peace that had settled on the realm. Had it not been for my father's maidservant, Helga, I know not how I would have survived. Not two summers after my mother's death, Harold Erickson, the oldest remaining son of the Blood Axe Brood, brought death to Hakon's loyal friend and kinsman, Sigurd, Jarl of Lade. I was nine winters old by then, and remember clearly how my father raged at that news, and how he began to work to protect our people from a similar fate. Knowing that King Harold would come for us next, my father built a new hall on a hill that lay on the southernmost tip and most strategic point of the island he ruled. The hill he chose was heavily forested, and we spent long days felling trees and clearing the hilltop until we could see the Vic stretching southward before us. On clear days, I could even see the dark line of Vestfold to the west. A beautiful place, that hilltop borg, but more importantly, a protected place that would be hard to take should Harold Erickson come for us. It was my first taste of hard work, and it left calluses on my hands as thick as gloves. But at the end of it, my father was well pleased with the fort and palisade and hall he had built from Jell's stout timber. It was at that time that Jarl Trigvi elevated his title to king, for he would not be known in the land as inferior in rank to Harald Eriksson. It was also during that time that the new King Trigvi began to visit us. Whereas my father used to go to him, now he, his family, his herd, and many of his nobles came to us, for our lands lay at the midpoint of Vingelmark and could be reached by sail or wagon. Each spring our household scrambled to prepare space and food for them all, and each summer they arrived by the dozens with their entourages to plan and prepare. My father grumbled at the burden, but deep down I think he enjoyed the activity and the honor of hosting the king. Though he still fought by the king's side when called, he had long since stepped aside as one of the household warriors, and I think he missed that prestige. In some small way, these visits replaced that absence. I also think my father enjoyed seeing Queen Astrid, whom he and my mother, before her death, had fostered in her youth. It had been my father who had introduced the girl to King Trigvi, a bond that had further solidified my father's standing with the king and with her father, a nobleman who lived in the north of Vingelmar. But equally important, my father was fond of Astrid. Though he would never admit to it, I think she filled part of the hole left by the loss of my mother. Which brings me back to the present, and why I was there with the son of King Trigvi and Queen Astrid, about to make a witless leap into the cold sea. About us stood a dozen other boys, all of them older and the sons of my father's men and other nobles, all of them calling for us to get on with it and jump. I knew them well, though I cannot say I liked them much, especially at that moment. Many had done this jump before, and I did not like how they hounded us. The actual jump did not concern me. I was small for my age, but I was agile too. I was confident I could leap and land correctly. My concern was for Prince Olaf, who was my charge each summer when the king visited. Should something ill befall him, I would not only feel the wound of worry for the boy, but also the sting of my father's lash for my failure and the scorn of the king. Of the three, it was my father's lash and disapproval I feared the most. It only made matters worse that Olaf had not been invited on this adventure. I had wanted to make the jump alone to prove myself to the older boys. But Olaf had heard me boasting to the others, and so had begged to come along. I had tried to refuse him because the jump was dangerous, and my father had put Olaf under my protection. But my protests went unheeded by the others. They wanted to see the king's son leap into the sea. Olaf, they argued, had the right to come, despite its danger. Inside, I knew they did not care what an injury to him might mean to me. Should something go wrong, they were not to blame. And I cursed them for that. 
and so instead of jumping alone, Olaf stood beside me, smiling, and I prayed to any god who would listen to keep Olaf safe from harm. You jump here, said a freckled-faced blonde boy named Ulf, pointing to a spot on the bluff where a small stone jutted from the earth. He was the son of a landholder on Gel Island, whose farm, Thordruga, lay close to my father's hall. The farm's name meant compost heap, so naturally, as children will do in their cruelty, we called Ulf Dungheap. I know where I am to jump, Dungheap, I hissed as I removed my shoes and cloak and stepped to the edge of the bluff. Far below, the murky sea rolled towards the coast and crashed onto the stony beach. It would be cold, I knew, but the chill would not rival the pain of landing poorly. I will go first, I said to Olaf, who stood beside me. If it is safe, then I will call to you to come after me. The smile on Olaf's pudgy face stretched. I knew that look and lifted my hands. Olaf, no! Olaf ran forward. See you at the bottom, he hollered as he sprinted to the ledge and leaped into the air. The boys yelled their delight at Olaf's zeal, drowning out my own holler of dismay, for I had seen his foot slip as he vaulted from the ledge. Olaf never had a chance. From the moment he flew from the cliff, he struggled to keep his balance. His arms flailed, his feet pumped as if trying to run on the wind, but there was no stopping his body's momentum and its tilt. His whoop turned to a shriek as his frame inched ever more sideways. I watched hopelessly, unable to right his fall or help him. He hit the water with a smack of such awkward force that it echoed off the bluff and up to our awaiting ears. Without another thought, I leaped. My eyes focused on the spot where Olaf had vanished beneath the ocean surface in a fountain of white spray. My stomach lurched and my arms flailed as I flew downward, struggling to stay upright and to keep my feet beneath me. I could feel my clothes rippling and my dark ponytail flying up behind me. The water that moments before had looked so far away rushed at me with alarming speed. As I hit it, I felt the first sting of the ocean surface as it smacked my open palm. The cold water then embraced me, and my body shot downward through the grayness. My bare feet landed on something slick and slimy, and I imagined a giant sea monster lurking in the depths. I recoiled and struggled to rise, kicking and floundering until my head broke the ocean's surface. Ten paces away, the water churned where Olaf had entered. He had yet to surface, and I swam to the spot, then dove into the grayness my eyes stinging from the salt and the chill as I scanned the murk. Nothing. Panicked, I dove deeper, craning my neck in every direction to locate my friend. It was then that I glimpsed something far beneath me. I dove even deeper and grabbed for Olaf's body. My fingers clutched something, a tunic mayhap, and I pulled and kicked for the surface. But I had not expected the weight of Olaf's body, which moved upward with my yanks, but not quickly enough. My lungs burned as I kicked and heaved. My limbs tingled. Above, beyond the ocean's surface, the sky beckoned like a portal to a different world. So close, and yet, with Olaf weighing me down, beyond my reach. I redoubled my efforts, but made little progress. We would both perish if I did not release my grip, and yet, I could not. I would die with my charge before letting him go. More arms suddenly reached out for us. Other boys had come to our rescue and now pulled Olaf upward, to air, to safety. Relieved of my burden, I kicked violently to rise and gasped for breath as soon as my mouth broke the water's plane. It was a foolish thing to do, for no sooner had I opened my mouth than I swallowed a mouthful of seawater and coughed violently. Beside me, the other boys began pulling Olaf's unconscious body shoreward. His young face pointed towards the bleak sky. I did my best to follow with my tingling limbs and my racing heart. Get him on his side, said Olaf, as soon as the boys had pulled his body beyond the crashing surf and laid him on the pebbled beach. Olaf moaned as the boys turned his body. Then, suddenly, he spewed his belly's contents onto the rocks. Olaf patted his back, and Olaf lurched again, his bile and recently chewed food mixing with the gray water on the stones. He will live. Olaf said with obvious relief. Thank the gods, replied another. I sat back with my rump on the pebbles and wiped the moisture from my face. It was then, in the aftermath of the leap, that my emotions washed over me. That Olaf had stolen my moment before the others 
and come so close to death in doing so infuriated me, and it took every fiber of my young body to keep from beating the little turd further. Beside me, the prince vomited again, and all my angry mind could think of was that it served him right. At that moment, I hope he vomited a dozen times. I spat seawater from my mouth and turned my eyes to the sea, away from the boys fawning over the prince. And that is when I spied the ship. That was chapter one of Forged by Iron. Thanks so much for listening. You can, uh, if you want to find out more, you can go to uh, Amazon and find my books there, or um, you can go to ericschumacher.net. You can also find me on Twitter at Dark Age Scribe, or you can go to Goodreads or Facebook. Thanks so much. Bye. Thank you so much, Eric. Again, all links will be in today's show description. It's with joy that I now introduce Ian Stuart Sharp, author and creator of The Viking Verse, a wonderful collection of novels and comics that share with us a parallel timeline where the Norse ruled the seas and stars with restless fleets, though the threat of Ragnarok is nevertheless very present for our heroes. I also highly recommend The Allfather Paradox. It's an impressive introduction that will delight fans of Norse sagas, myths and poems, not forgetting fantasy. And it must be said, Ian's skill of navigating us through the various timelines is deftly done. So the part of Loki's Wager that I'm going to read today is drawn from the saga of Ingvar the Traveller, about 70-75 pages into the book. It's an alternate history, a retelling of the famous myth of Ingvar the Far Travelled. And what I do in this particular story is reposition, repurpose Ingvar as part of the Viking verse by this point in the story in the series the Norse Empire is fully fledged and rules vast swarms of Europe a little like uh, in our real history King Canute's North Sea Empire uh, anyway in, in this similar kind of timeline this is set in 1038 but the setting here is Jomsborg pirate emporium best known for the Joms Vikings. The army arrived on their tall ships. The sails were striped, blue, red or green, woven from wool at magical songs, held taut by ropes of valrus hide. Some had at the prow figures of lions, bulls, dolphins, gods in gilt copper. Others were coiled and spiralled like serpents. The dragon led them on, spreading its wings and turning. It was carved and painted from stem to stern, beautifully overlaid with gold, its gunnels gleaming with the shields of polished steel, overlapping oak planks secured with silver rivets, tapering to an arching tail. Ingvar stood on the lofting and punched the air with exhilaration. He was, in that moment at least, glad to be home, with the northwesterly wind rippling through the sail, the dragon almost flew. The spotters on the great lighthouse would have seen them on the horizon a dozen miles away, but his crew could sail straight onto the shore and have boots on the ground within forty minutes of the hue and cry. Ten minutes for those watching unguarded on the beach. If you were going to run from a Viking raid, you had better show swift heels. If only the northern tribes had learnt that lesson, he wouldn't have to go splashing after them through the marsh flats every summer. On days like these, it seemed like the whole town had come to greet them, women and children running the long crested ridges that overlooked the shoreline. The afternoon was bright, the sea breeze stiff but bracing, and Ingvar grew wistful. It wasn't so long ago that he'd been a boy cheering from those bluffs, watching the fleet surge along the bay, mast after mast. The memory stirred something within him, a sullen, resentful pride, perhaps. He was hoarse from shouting against the wind and the spray, so he raised both his arms by way of salutation. The rest of his floating menagerie took the signal's permission to start barking, braying, whooping and hollering. The Yom's Vikings weren't known for their restraint. The dragon approached the narrow channel at the head of the estuary, beyond the barrier spit. Ingvar was grateful Aegir's dread daughters were calm today. 
rolling and breaking gently on the sand. The sea Jotun had made this land into a briny labyrinth, a morass of ponds, marshes and fields, and then the Jarls of Jomsburg had conspired to make it even more impregnable. A wooden stockade stretched along the coast for miles, and the passage inland was dominated by a stone tower bristling with catapults. Ingeniously, they had built an arch that spanned the river mouth, with an iron gate to close the channel at will. The gate was barred, of course, as was always the case when the fleet had sailed. Hundreds of ships passed to and fro, north, east and west into the Estresalt, but none without the consent of the Norse. Ingvar motioned to his steersmen to signal their arrival, and the dragon duly slowed. The keeper of the coast would question them, sound his consent with the winding horn, and then the gates would open. Ingvar never questioned the theatrics. His people had a ritual urge, undiminished in all the long years of conquest, exaggerated even by each easy victory. His crew were no different. They were mostly highborn, sons of chieftains or counsellors, and often the third or fourth generation to serve. They were steeped in talismans and totems. Ingvar watched as the coxswain, Soti Vagnason, kissed the amber Torshammer around his neck before tucking it safely back under his bright russet beard, comforted by the thought that his god was watching over them. Ingvar instinctively checked his own fetish, the circuit timepiece he kept in the same place, the single hand pointed directly at the middle of the afternoon. After a few moments, a figure duly emerged on the tower above, a silhouette against the sun. He shouted to the men holding water below, his voice booming across the sound. Who commands your ship? And where did you lie up last night? Ingvar grinned wide in recognition. The Jarl of Jomsburg has returned. We were with the Saimgallar this summer, sailing up the Dina River to remind them to pay tribute they owed my brother. Last night, we laid up at Rafiness and sailed home today with this fair wind. The man on the tower called back. And did vice hard, the Saimgallar? Fuck you! Not yet. But is he planning to? No. He is waiting for a nobler man than myself, before he lowers his trousers. I told him the Filker himself is on his way. Ingvar shouted back. The man on the tower guffawed with delight, the golden band around his forehead catching the light. Well said, brother. You have done me a great service with the taxes. I return your city to you. Ingvar's crews cheered in unison now also recognising the glint of gold and the flash of scarlet as belonging to Torment, the lord of Midgard's earth and kingdoms. Ingvar was genuinely delighted and thoroughly surprised to see his older cousin. Torment! Why are you here? Are you afraid I'll keep your whale guild for myself? Unseen hands began to winch the gate, which rose slowly, dripping water and great clumps of bladder rack onto the deck. Of course not, Ingvar. It's good to see you. And you, my lord. This is an unexpected pleasure. I'll come ashore. Ingvar snapped his fingers, summoning his men to help him, but the dragon's oars were already drawing through the water, sweeping them forward through the gate. Within moments, the Filkir was out of sight, and Ingvar had to wait until his voice met them on the other side. No need. Tonight we feast. Come to my camp then. We have lots to discuss. Now, Loki's Wager and the first book in this series, The All-Father Paradox, both books are available on Audible, uh, on Amazon, uh, and in all good bookstores. Although, in these days of coronavirus, you might be hard-pressed to get into a bookstore and at best probably to order it online you can also find anything that you want to about the viking verse by searching uh, on twitter for at viking verse or on facebook for at viking verse and if you like pictures of vikings also on instagram at viking verse
Thank you, Ian. That was marvellous. And, of course, all links will be included in today's show description. I would now like to introduce another friend and gifted writer. Aaron Lex is the author of Moral Valhalla and our final scald for today. When I first read the opening chapters of Moral Valhalla, I was struck by the imagery, a wonderful cast of complex characters, the vast amount of research involved and the very clear importance of this era to its author. Not only are we thrust into the realm, mythology and high adventure of the Norse, but that of their neighbours. And might I say, what a thoroughly genuine and engaging tale it is too. Hey guys, my name is Aaron Lax and this is the first chapter from my novel Moral Valhalla. The sea heaved and swayed with the fury of a mother bear defending her cub, but the ship held. A fierce wind orchestrated the spray of the waves, dancing it across a sodden mass of dripping beards, hunched shoulders and gritted teeth. The crew of thirty operated the ship's oars with the rhythm of a single heart, their weathered skin capturing droplets of water that mapped their faces and caused them to glisten in the moonlight. Eric, standing at the steering oar of the ship, wore a knowing smile as he pointed in the direction of travel. Land! I see land! he shouted, his low voice snagging on the crash of the waves. The crew erupted into a synchronised cheer, giving the men a newfound strength. Leif drew back his oar with a swift jerk before leaning forward to speak to Bjor. We have proven ourselves to Thor, he shouted. Now let's prove ourselves to Odin and return as the men who buried the boys that they left us. Bjor turned his head to reply, carving a smile onto his face. Yes, may the gods show us the way, he shouted. He turned his head back and lowered it as another spray of water exploded over the edge of the ship. Or we shall be forever lost, he muttered to himself, his comment hidden by the chorus of raging waves and billowing sail. The ship tilted and dipped as it moved toward their destination, elegantly traversing across the water to bring the distant mass of land closer and closer. It was freshly built, using the best shipbuilders they had to create the perfect harmony between strength and weight. Eric had overlooked its construction personally. Now, he watched as its body twisted and curved with the waves, lost in a dance that would see its crew through. As it pulled up onto the shore, the crew disembarked with haste. Sodden and submerged to the knee, they moved into formation on either side of the ship like a newly released eagle spreading its wings, and glided it onto the stones. Once beached, they gathered at the ship's head where Eric climbed up to address them. The gods have returned us to the west, he said, bashing his sword upon his wooden shield to create a dull thump laced with clanging metal. This time, we shall not leave so quickly. The men returned their gesture in approval, creating a sound that was carried off by the roar of the wind. All but one. Bjor did not join in. Instead, he tightened his grip on the hilt of his axe and clenched his jaw, a silent defiance that did not go unnoticed. Eric threw him a look of contempt before continuing on with his speech. In fact, we'll be here for quite some time, he said, so I hope you pleased your women before you left. The air was filled with the bouncing ripple of laughter, which Eric soon brought to a stop by raising his hand. Tonight, we rest on the ship, he said. Yorunda, take five men with you and bring the sail down. Yorunda nodded, mumbled, and pointed at five surrounding men before setting off to drop the sail and cast it over the boat to create a tent-like roof. The rest of you, start sharing out the food and water. No mead till morning. Make sure to leave some for Yorunda and the others, Eric continued. There will be no fires. Tonight we embrace what the gods have given us. He smiled a wry smile and leant casually against the figurehead of the ship, a snarling horned serpent. If you get cold, get close to the man next to you and think of your wife at home, he said. Eric nodded and the group began to move below a low buzz of layered voices. Leif grabbed Bjor by the shoulder and shook him in the spirit of camaraderie. Come Bjor, he said. Don't look like that. Are you not glad to be back? Of course I am, Bjor replied. Kaffley knocked him with his shoulder as he passed. Then act like it, he said. Bjor, Eric shouted, moving through the rabble of men towards him. Let's move up that hill so we can get a better look at why we have come. Leif sucked his top lip, patted Bjor on the shoulder and joined the movement of the group. Eric and Bjor ascended the coastal hill in silence, their tunics and hair lagging behind them as they became weighted by the wind. Once at the top, they saw their first target, a solitary settlement silhouetted by its own torchlight, a glow amongst the darkness like an ember amongst ash. It seems the fates have smiled upon us, Bjor said. Do you think I'm stupid? Eric replied, taking Bjor off guard. What do you mean? Bjor said. I know you did not want to come back, Eric said, and I'm yet to find out why. A silence swelled between them. Eric sighed and turned around to leave, taking a few steps before stopping to stare into the distance. He ran his hand through his greying beard. We attack as the sun reaches over the horizon, not before, he said. 
He paused for a second, turned around and placed his hand on Bjor's shoulder, his blue tunic contrasting against Bjor's rust-coloured cloth. Just remember, we are here for the gods and for our people, he said. Do not put me in a position where I have to choose between you and them. After Eric walked away, Bjor stared a little longer at the glowing settlement, turned around and collapsed into a sit upon the hill. He watched the moon pour down on the men, the gushes of wind causing the loose strands of his hair to rise and dance. The wind soon settled and it did not take long for his thoughts to become entangled with visions of her, his eyes fixed on a speck of light floating on the horizon, glimmering like the eye of a distant god. All was still on the boat, all except a swinging lamp, a beating heart and a bead of cold sweat orienteering its way through coarse stubble. Lutzia began to feel the ache from being on his knees too long and shuffled to get comfortable. His black shoulder-length hair, though wet and weighted, was loose and swayed with his movements. He spared a glance to the distant shoreline, the shape of a beached ship revealing itself as his eyes adjusted to the darkness. A harsh intake of breath from one of the men indicated a decision had been made, and he knew his moments were numbered. Blood is heavier than gold, my friend, he said to the backs of his captors, trying to get their attention. The boat was not big, and they were not far from him as they conversed near the lamp. To his rear, there was a chest that housed his clothes. You obviously don't know gold, Gisli grunted, not turning around. Oh, Lucio continued, I know gold, and I know blood too. Lucio moved his hands out in front of him as he spoke, animating them like his words with puppet strings that caused the chains of his shackles to rattle and clink. His white undertunic was drenched, sticking to his skin, and his bare feet had long been numb from the cold. You see, he said, gold you can put down or give away, but blood? Blood stains you in places you can't get to. Yes, it's light to begin with, like a cup of wine, but eventually it gets heavier and heavier. You can't put it down even when your soul burns like fire. Lucio lowered his head. Oh no, my friends, you can't put blood down even when it starts to become heavy. Gisli turned to look at him the light of the lamp turned into shadow in a deep scar that ran down his cheek. He strode forward and struck Lutzio across the face with the hilt of his axe. Keep your tongue or lose it, he said, his wet hair blending into the darkness of his clothes. Lutzio spat the blood from his new wound onto the planked floor. All I'm saying, he continued, wiping his mouth, is that I can get you the gold, but you'll always have my blood on your hands. Gisli raised his axe, scrunching up his face in anger. Wait, his companion said, raising his hand. Gisli stopped short, looking around to the source of the command. Jerry turned, moved forward and squatted so he could meet eyes of Lucio. His hair was tied into a bun, revealing his gaunt face and short black beard and full. Now, he said, grasping Lucio's hands as if he were addressing a child. How do you expect to get this gold? I know this shoreline. There is a monastery near here, Lucio replied. We can raid it. Take the gold. Jerry laughed, lowered his head and shook it side to side. He looked up and grabbed Lutzio by his cheeks, causing his lips to move away from his face to mirror those of a fish. Are you trying to get us killed? Do you not remember that Eric has exiled us? He will kill us if we go ashore, he said, throwing Lutzio's face to the side. I don't keep up with your Northmen's squabbles, Lutzio replied, straightening himself up. But it doesn't matter. I can go. Diri and Gisli both laughed. Why should we trust you? Diri said. Lutzio surrendered the palms of his hands. Life's in the risk, he said, smirking. Plus, we all know we barely made it through that storm. How many more do you think you've got until the gods take your sea-soaked bodies? The way I see it, you kill me, you're goldless. You let me go and I don't come back, you're goldless, angry. You find me and we do this all again. He clenched his fist and pointed with his other hand. But, I get your gold and I return it to you. I can live my life with all its joys and sorrows. He leaned his head back and kept a stern expression. Don't take away my chance to do just that. Jerry and Gisli stared at each other, communicating in a dance of facial gestures instead of words. Lutzio watched the lamp swaying with the rocking boat, like a glowing pendulum that slowly chipped away the barricade between life and death. The communication stopped, and Derry walked over to his captive with a deliberate slowness, squatting to make himself level again. You've got one chance, he said, emphasising his point by raising a single finger. I don't know how you're going to do it, and I don't care. If you don't come back, I'll hunt you down and blood eagle you on burning coals. Lucio smiled. Should I leave in the morning? He said. Bjor re-entered the world of the Woken in a rush of consciousness. 
He grasped at the air in front of him and removed the fur blanket that was now sticking to his dampened skin. He gasped and coughed before he managed to regain his composure, his outburst causing the surrounding men to do nothing more than briefly scrunch up their faces in a sleep-filled disapproval. He stood up, still trembling, and focused on his clouded breath that misted a backdrop of a sky still full of stars. He grabbed the point of his beard in his hands and pulled on it, a reassuring sense of pain spread across his chin. He was here. Here was real. He looked to see if the light from the night before was still on the horizon. It wasn't. The noise that had woken him sounded again, the ringing bell of a nearby monastery galloping across the black. Something worrying you, a voice said. Bjorn turned around to see Eric sitting on a nearby rock, his sword laying across his knees. No more than usual, Bjorn replied. He coughed and spat. Do you make it your hobby to watch men as they sleep? Eric laughed. Sometimes, he replied, tapping the hilt of his sword. Sometimes a sleeping man is closer to the gods than one who is awake. He stood up and walked towards Bjorn, placing the flat of his blade upon Bjorn's chest. I'll be watching you today, he said. Don't let me down. Bjorn stared back, his lip quivering in anger. Get up, Eric shouted, without diverting his gaze. The surrounding men stirred. Some of them opened their eyes only to close them again. Eric began to hit the hilt of his sword upon a nearby rock, causing the clang of metal and stone to wash over the sleeping men. I said get up, he shouted again. If they are starting their day, then so are we. With this, he walked past Bjorn, almost knocking him aside with his shoulder, and started to kick those still asleep. Once all of the men had submitted to the new day, they fueled themselves on a cocktail of hard bread, dried fish, sticky mead, and the desire to smother the glisten of their blades with the enemy's blood. Some prayed to Odin that this would be the day he sent his Valkyries to take them to Valhalla. Others had no desire to rush the process. This world had pleasures of his own. In preparation for first light, the men washed the salt from their skin and hair, made peace with the gods and limbered up in pockets of contained, muted sparring. Once the light of the sun began battle with the night, Eric gathered his raiders. We know that it is not the first strike that fells a tree, so we should not expect the first raid to bring the glory, he said. The last time we were here, the injuries of my son caused us to leave early. This is true. I spoke to each and every one of you about my decision before you agreed to come back, before you took the oath once more. He shuffled in his spot, rested his arm on the hilt of his sheathed sword and bowed his head slightly. I thank you for doing so, he continued, raising it again. The building over that hill is full of soft flesh and hard gold, and soft women that make the flesh hard, one of the men shouted, causing the others to laugh and nod. Eric raised his hand. Silence. We know that it is undefended, he continued, as if nothing had happened. The only dangers that we have to fear are the ones that we bring upon ourselves. He paused, and sheathed his sword and raised it. Let's go and show these Christians that their god is no match for ours, he said. The men pulled over the hills as a silent shadow, wraith-like in their approach to the monastery. Eric stopped the advance and took a moment to view their target under the light of the day. He noticed that the two large wooden buildings on either side of the church now featured areas of brighter and newer timber. What are we waiting for, Yoranda said. They have repaired since we were last here, and the church is now made of stone, Eric replied. Yes, but, Yoranda said, before Eric raised his hand. Shh, Eric said. Listen. The raider stood in silence, poised and ready. The soft singing of male and female voices mixed in with their own heavy breathing, seeping through the church door like a siren seduction drawing them in. Yorinda and Eric smiled. I expect they are praying for us not to return, Yorinda said. I expect so too, Eric replied, unsheathing his sword. The new day sun stretched across the buildings, bringing a subtle warmth to the crisp morning air. The first birds had begun to sing, and the beauty of everything felt as fragile as thin ice on a summer's day. The crunch of frosted grass under viking boots surrounded the moving mass of men, which slowly began to eclipse the fingers of sunlight creeping through the heavy timber door of the church. Eric placed his hand on it and paused to listen to the singing before it became screaming. Inside the church, the monks and the nuns were taking part in their morning service. Too lost in prayers and the thoughts of salvation, none of them have noticed the sun disappear from below the door. A young monk found himself lost in the ray of light coming in through one of the church windows illuminating the specks of dust as they flitted around the house of God. He smiled, his eyes twinkling with the warmth of his soul before returning to his prayer. The creak of an opening door applauded the end of the hymn, causing the abbess who was leading the song to look up from her book. The horror on her face, wide-eyed and open-mouthed, alarmed the rest of the church. Like a ripple in a pond, 
The monks and nuns turned their heads to see the cause of her fear, and the calmness of morning was dashed to pieces in an instant. A splatter of blood climbed the coarse stone walls before the wailing and begging begun. The Vikings flooded inside the church, moving either side of the wall that ran lengthways down the church to separate the men and women from their temptations. The monks and nuns began to exit through the doors on either side of the building, causing a swarm of bodies to crash into each other. Eric, noticing this, turned to Kathleen beside him and grabbed him by the shoulder. Take some men and chase them down. Split up. Don't let any of them escape, and don't kill them all, he shouted. Kathleen nodded, turned around and began to move through the crowd, tapping men on the shoulder as he told them to follow him. Bjor, still with a clean axe, darted his gaze around the church. He had not seen her. To his relief, she had not yet joined the blood-soaked bodies that carpeted the floor. He leant down, grabbed the tunic of a dead monk and smeared blood on his blade. Then, he pushed his way through the crowd and made his way outside. I hope you enjoyed the first chapter of Moral Valhalla. If you'd like to read more, you can find the first two chapters on my blog, which is amlax.wordpress.com, so that's A-M-L-A-X.wordpress.com. And you can also find me on Instagram at alaxwriter, A-L-A-X-Writer, where I'll be posting updates regarding the book, and you can also find snippets from upcoming chapters. Thank you so much for listening, and stay safe. Thank you so much, Aaron. And Joshua, Eric, and Ian too. You have all been marvellous and made the first Skald Circle an absolute delight. Before we go today, I have a promo to share with you at the end of the show. It's from the lovely sisters Dishira and Rishalia of the legendary Africa podcast. They are a superb team who've been incredibly supportive of so many fellow podcasters, so please do check them out. I can assure you a few laughs, a lot of myth, and a fantastically enjoyable time. Last but by no means least, I would like to thank Belen Prado. She is an incredibly talented musician and has very kindly let me sample her tracks from her album Dreaming Into Nature. For the Skull Circle, I used Rising With The Wind. If you have a moment, please pop over to Belen's YouTube channel. This track in particular is quite beautiful and it really comes from the heart. Belen's music also featured in the free meditation track released over on the Patreon page so please do feel free to check that one out too. As always, my continued thanks to the Patreon family. Your support means an awful lot when there's so much happening in the world. And I'd like to thank new members to the Patreon family too. Your kindness is wonderful, and you guys, you really are just the best. Should anyone wish to reach out, you can find me on email mlegendslore at gmail.com or Twitter at loremyth. The podcast is also on Facebook and on patreon.com forward slash mythlegendlore. I hope everyone is safe and well and taking good care of one another. I'm Siobhan Clark. Thank you for listening to the Myth, Legend and Lore podcast. We all know real life can suck sometimes, and your boss accidentally seeing you in your underpants on Zoom last week doesn't help any. That's why reluctantly codependent sisters, the Shira and Rashalia, keep you enthralled and in stitches every week with their podcast, Legendary Africa. Every Monday and Friday, we take you on a journey of mythical lands, magical objects, and monstrous creatures, both ancient and modern. Find Legendary Africa on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and wherever you feed your ears. And remember, stay safe, stay sexy, and stay legendary.